0: Welcome. Today, the Whistleblower Newsroom is serving as an echo chamber, airing a portion of an extraordinary panel discussion hosted by Off Guardian, an unlimited hangout titled, quote, Russia and the Great Reset, resistance or complicity, Close quote. The discussion is a rare deep dive into the history, players, and goals of those vying for the Great Reset's ultimate prize, total governance over everything and everyone, and how a fraudulent COVID pandemic has been used to push the Great Reset into high gear. Special thanks to reporter Whitney Webb, who granted the Whistleblower Newsroom permission to air the excerpts you are about to hear. If after listening to this program, you wanna hear the full two plus hours of the entire panel discussion, go to off dash Guardian.org. I urge you to listen hard to this discussion. It's rare to have the privilege of listening to unfettered voices such as these on such an urgent topic.
1: Hello, everyone. Kit Knightley from Off Guardian here, and welcome to our panel discussion, Russia and the Great Reset, Resistance or Complicity. Is the war in Ukraine an extension of the Great Reset? Are Russia and indeed China opposed to the globalist agenda or are not taking an active part in it?
2: I am Whitney Webb. Thanks, Kit. Uh, So I'll be introducing our panelists today. Um, Our first panelist is Tom Luongo. Tom is a political commentator and analyst who hosts the Gold, Goats, and Guns blog and podcast, uh, which is frequently republished by sites like Zero Hedge. He is also the editor of Newsmax's Ultimate Wealth Report. Our next panelist is Riley Wagaman. Riley is an American journalist based in Moscow, and he has previously worked for RT, Press TV, and Russia Insider. He currently writes about Russia with a special focus on COVID-related issues at his Substack, Edward Slavsquat, which you can find at edwardslavsquat.substack.com. Our next panelist is Matthew Arrett. Matthew is the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, a contributor to the media outlet Strategic Culture, and a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is a contributor to Unlimited Hangout and also the author of the books The Untold History of Canada and Clash of the Two Americas. You can read his writings at CanadianPatriot.org or MattErit.Substack.com. Last but not least... Uh, Ian Davis. Ian is an independent investigative journalist, blogger, and author from Portsmouth, UK. He is a contributor to UK Column and Unlimited Hangout. His work is often featured by Off Guardian, The Corbett Report, and Zero Hedge, among others. And he also has his own website, In This Together, which you can find at in-this-together.com. I'll start off with how I sort of view The Great Reset. So the Great Reset uh, was announced in uh, the first couple months of the uh, COVID-19 event Um, and basically uh, posited using the COVID-19 event as a catalyst to push through a bunch of uh, policy uh, agendas, most of which center around uh, the fourth industrial revolution and those technologies uh, and, and look to Uh, broadly digitize, um, you know, pretty much every sector uh, of the economy and our lives uh, for the purpose of top-down technocratic control.
3: I would agree to what you said, but I would take it a a little bit uh, further back. And I would say that in my analysis, the current thing that's come to be known as Great Reset finds its origins more in the, um, the document, the founding document of UNESCO at the end of World War II in 1946 by Sir Julian Huxley the guy who uh, became the president of the British Eugenics Society, where he called for taking eugenics as sort of the queen of all sciences that became distasteful and unthinkable after Hitler failed and to rewire it and retool it in the post-war age uh, to make the unthinkable become thinkable. And in that, he calls for getting society focusing on the young baby boomer generation being born after World War II to um, accept the, the necessity of world governments to transcend the idea of nation states, uh, the transcend the idea of traditional values, traditional ideas of connection to your nation state uh, as something that is bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is the same guy who goes on to found transhumanism as a term in 1954. He's the guy who creates things like uh, the World Wildlife Fund with uh, for uh, Nature in 1961 with Prince Philip, the guy who had just created the the Bilderberger group uh, just a few years earlier. Um, and the whole idea, I think, was cutting off like like what uh Huxley's um, friend and colleague who founded the World Health Organization, uh, G. Brock Kisholm stated that the ultimate uh, to cure society of its the causes of, of overall mental illness and war, which Kisholm says explicitly is the uh, belief the, the belief in family, uh, nationalism, and traditional religions. Which he says in 1946, just as he's founding the World Health Organization. So right. I think when you go back to these ideas, uh, the the effects of the movements, that the institutions that were put in online by Huxley, by Kissholm, which have as a directive to reduce industrial civilization, change our values from being eliminating poverty, getting people uh, liberated from imperialism, into protecting nature from from humankind, which is defined as a virus, always destructive and cutting off the traditional cultural values. I think those are the things that get us at the heart of the Great Preset okay.
2: uh, yeah. perspective. Well, based on what you uh, just said then to the definition that I, I laid out, then you would wanna add, um, I guess, uh, global governance um, global and uh, eugenics, yes? A
3: new eugenics and a reduction of industrial civilization so that you, could su- you no longer support uh, the lives of eight billion or more people with uh, a deindustrialized society of post na- post national deindustrialized society. I agree with Matt's uh, assessment. Uh, let's
4: just put it this way: it it's about who's actually going to wind up in control. Okay, it's not about. The It's very clear that this is coming from a um, a particular organization and a particular group of people, and that they would be centered around the World Economic Forum. They would be what I call the Davos crowd. They are not eugenicists anymore. I don't believe. I believe they're disgenicists, meaning they actually want to roll us backwards, at a, from a from, a, from a, a genetic perspective. They don't want to. They, you know, eugenics has this idea that it, it should improve. Man, we're going to cull the weak. Right. This is what I do as a goat farmer. And what they're doing is actually making it they're actually trying to make us they're actually trying the dumbest now and make it worse and then pass off the dumb jobs. Make us make us and destroy culture that way by mixing everything together. So I'm just I think it's very important that we kind of remind ourselves that that's what they're because they they honestly think I think that that's what they want. And that it ties into the fundamental inherent racism I see as part of the World Economic Forum's agenda. Okay. And when you do that, then you realize what the hierarchy is. Because my definition of the Great Reset is that this leaves Europe in charge of all the other vassal states and all the other areas of the world as vassals to the uh, to, uh, to them. And, that, and, and it's an extension of the last three hundred and fifty or four hundred years of European colonialism.
2: If you look mm-hmm. at you know eugenics over eugenicists over the years, there has been sort of this idea of like an underclass. Uh, I think H.G. Wells, sure, who I know uh, Matt Matt's work has touched on uh, a lot, sure. had, had it was a eugenicist guy, a Fabian, and had this idea that there should there would eventually be a a forking of humanity, like the genetically elite group, and then like the goblin like working. Class, Mm
4: -hmm. (laughs) or whatever they want us all to be, just just
5: higher than the goblin-like work.
2: Well, it's sort of like the stratification you see in Brave New World for people that are familiar of the alphas and the betas and all of that stuff. It's
5: very much about transforming the global economy, but it's also about transforming us uh, as individuals and transforming us within the within within the new economic uh, paradigm that it that it intends to create, and it's a. and it's based upon the idea of pushing forward uh, sustainable development in, as as a control system rather than as a solution. So uh, I I think that it's important to add the economic aspect of what the oh, Great totally. Reset is is about. I am a market analyst.
4: I'm and and a reader of the tea leaves. And The tea leaves are very simple to me, and I use a couple of very important heuristics in, in politics. One, you know, a guy. You know a guy's uh, position in politics, you, you know who his friends are, and you know who his enemies are. Okay, so is Putin a member of the W... Is a Putin's past association with the WEF still valid? No, they hate it. It's very simple. It's the same thing with Donald Trump. It's the same thing with Hillary Clinton. Or not Hillary, it's yeah, the same thing with Hillary Clinton. They all love her, so therefore she's a member. It's like, it's not a difficult heuristic with these people because they're both very smart, but not very clever. Okay, the second he- heuristic is ultimately Um, you know, what is their stated objectives? And we can spend a lot of time um, looking at their objectives and their stated objectives and whether achieving them or not. I've been watching Russia from a cultural perspective. And again, I brought the cultural aspects of this up early on because I want you to, um, because it's important to see it from that perspective. You know, you've got how many reports of how many churches are being built in Russia? How and uh, while they're actively destroying culture in every aspect of what is good about American culture, what was previously thought of as good American culture here in the United States? We've got the the the, the coming canceling of Disney by the right, for example, here in the United States is going to be a backlash against these people trying to destroy, trying to even destroy everything that Disney owns. Okay. Same, so when you when you parse it from that perspective and you listen to what Putin has said and has had, and has said to Klaus Schwab's face at Davos, I, I think it's and then you see his actions and how he backs those things up, it's very clear that he's not on board with their agenda. Now, have they used what they know to be his reactions, if they push him to the, to do these things on the chessboard, will he react in this way? And then therefore they can use that to their advantage, or at least they think so? Absolutely. Can we conflate those two things into, into mistaking manipulation for intent? Absolutely. And I think that's where we are today. I think it's very important that we've kind of we're losing the forest for the trees here because there's so much data and there's so much mal, mis and disinformation coming from the intelligence agencies to put push us into a position where we're all, we've all lost our minds. I mean, and rightly so, because we, we are all worried about them pushing us to a potential nuclear war. So it's really not hard to
3: see how it's easy to get lost in the fugue of information. Overland. this is not something that was unforeseeable. And and in fact, I think that it was very much built into what was created in 1971. When uh, Klaus Schwab was induced as a little uh, puppet manager by Kissinger and others who are a little bit higher up in the echelons to put online a a sort of junior partner to the Bilderberger group. Um, And at the same time as that was happening, you had a a separation of the dollar from the, the fixed exchange rate gold reserve system in the US by Kissinger, Schultz and others by the Trilateral Commission coming online. And at the same time as that was happening, you had the Club of Rome being brought in um, and their computer models that would use for the first time uh, linear equations to justify carrying capacity of human beings on the earth that was being brought into the world economic Forum very early on. Alexander King, Clau- you know, uh, Aurelio Pichai, others of, uh, of a certain eugenics bent. Um, who essentially put into motion something that transformed a a genuinely industrial capitalist, long-term thinking economy. There were problems to it before 1971, obviously, but we had a a metric that tied value to physical production and building things. So you couldn't just make money out of thin air. You had to justify it with an increased power of productivity before 1971. Afterwards, a new sort of logic was put into motion that turned our economy into an atrophying post-industrial cult time bomb of increasing rates of bubble and, and fictitious capital built on fictitious capital using ever-increasing rates of unpayable uh, debts that really skyrocketed after alan greenspan another prodigy well i mean anyway normalized derivatives right which is today the time bomb of time bombs economically um which could be blown just as easily as the 1929 bubbles were blown that induced a a massive wealth transfer in a form of an attempted Great Reset back in 1929 um, and a controlled demolition of the economy back then. It didn't work out back then. However, I think now they're trying to correct certain mistakes that they think that they made. And uh, now we're facing that time bomb erupting. And there's a fight over what the new operating system will be. And there will be a new system. The question is, what will be the general framework and paradigm in which certain technologies, certain Ideas of economic value, uh, security, other things are operating. And there's, I believe, a, a real gen- serious battle between these two different opposing views of the way the new system will be. And, and that's how I'm looking at the current configuration of the multipolar Russia China Iran uh, orientation versus the unipolar cage of depopulation, deindustrialization, and uh, dehumanism um, of the Klaus Schwab, you know, golden
5: collar <laughs> Davos clique. In the West. Going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, what is the Great Reset? What is it about? Well, it's you know it's all the things that we said. It's about introducing this new kind of, of fourth industrial revolution based technocracy. Um, and if you look at what Russia and, you have to say, China are doing together at the moment, there is no difference between what Russia and China are doing and what the, the, the Western Schwabian uh, unipolar world order. And I agree with, with much of what Matthew said. You know, there but what I would say is that the clash between the unipolar G7 based world order, for want of a better expression, and the G20 based multipolar world order suggested by um Putin and Xi Jinping in their joint statement a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um is is it's definitely two two models that are vying for supremacy but they're vying for supremacy within one system there's only one system on offer and both russia and china in fact i would i would go further i would say that china is the model for the new system and russia are very closely partnership partnering with china on on the rollout of this global model and it's a model for global governance So I think what we are seeing in uh, the clash between the the, or the supposed clash, and I'm starting to doubt very much um, to what extent this is. I mean, I could go full bore tinfoil hat here because it's looking to me like the West is self-destructing. And I mean, I I can't see that at the moment that sanctions are going to, Russia looks like it's it's looking increasingly like Russia. We're going to be able to circumnavigate the sanctions quite easily. Um, you know, what are we looking at? We are looking at a realignment of power. And where does that go? And if we go back, we don't have to go back very far. We can go back to the Trilateral Commission. We can go back to the comments of people like Soros and we can go back to the council on foreign relations and the Bilderberg group who have all been talking about this eastward shift in power for the last 30 years 40 years and now we are now we are seeing it we're seeing the thing that they've been talking about all this time and there's you know Russia are fully on board with central bank digital currency which is a key element of 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 um what we are what we we're, we're going to going to suffer in terms of a technocracy fully on board with the fourth industrial revolution if we look at how the how that uh, russia and china managed the covid 19 pseudo pandemic which um it they were leading on it they, they the the russia of and china were were as 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 draconian as any any nation could be in terms of how they managed that that fake pandemic. Then we've got um, the fact that that both China uh, the world's first, arguably the world's first tech name. China are the, the model that are that have been supported by the West. It's been the West has been helping develop that model uh, for the last 40 years, has been pumping, you know, foreign direct investment has been supporting and creating China to, to be where it is today. And that shift in power, that power struggle. And the one thing that I would say in response to what Matthew said was, you know, it doesn't have to be either or. Now, I think we we there is a danger that we can think that because there's this power struggle ongoing, that that somehow means that the um, the, uh, either that that power struggle isn't genuine, and if it is genuine, therefore, that rules out possibility of Russia and China being on board with what we could call the Great Reset Agenda. Or if it's not genuine, it's all part of some ruse to, to implement the Great Reset Agenda, where, in re- where as in reality, I believe what we are seeing is a power struggle within that system. It's not, it's not as if there's any attempt by Russia in particular to change that system it's the same system and certainly in terms of economic if we if we look at, at the economic side of what the um, great reset is is proposing in terms of how it's using stakeholder capitalism metrics to measure sustainable development and using and converting sdgs into basically into market regulations well Russia are fully on board with that. And so are their very, very close partners, China, who have offered to do things like host the International Sustainability Standards Board. I don't see any difference between the two.
2: So Riley, uh, two minutes about for you.
6: I think that a good way to start this conversation, for at least for me, is if everyone agrees that COVID is basically a scam, has been used to curb stomp the plebs, and the question for me is, well, has Russia participated in this curb stomping, yes or no, and to what extent? And did it actually cooperate? I think that there's this idea that Russia sort of went its own way and did its own thing and somehow bypassed the COVID tyranny. And is this true or not? So I just wanna read a few quotes. I'm not gonna expose philosophy. I'm just gonna read straight a few block, block quotes from a few news reports. July 2020, so this is a month before Sputnik V, was given the okay by the Russian health ministry. Uh, Fortune Fortune magazine reports that there's this rumor that Russia has stolen vaccine intelligence from the West. And so Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund says, this is ridiculous because we've already signed a deal with AstraZeneca to manufacture the University of Oxford's COVID-19 vaccine at our farm, which by the way they invest in, which means the Kremlin is making money off the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, Here's his direct quote. Everything that is needed to produce the British vaccine has already been transferred to our farm, he said. AstraZeneca has already signed commitments to transfer all production of the British vaccine to our farm in Russia. Let's fast forward to November 2021. So we're skipping uh, quite a few months and a lot of interesting things happened, but we'll skip. In November, Dmitry Medvedev wrote this quite interesting article where he laid out lessons from the pandemic. And let's read some of the things he said. He uh, expressed support for Russia's decision to use legal restrictive measures against unvaccinated individuals, which according to him include the possibility of imposing a ban on travels to other countries, the possibility of refusing admission to educational organizations and healthcare institutions, and the possibility of suspension from work. This is directly from Medvedev's article. He goes on to say that policies that significantly infringe on the rights of the unvaccinated could be justified because, in certain situations, and now I'm quoting again public safety and social well being of the entire population become more important than respect for the rights and freedoms of an individual citizen. He goes on to talk about the advantages of the COVID pandemic, so called pandemic. He says, and this is a direct quote. Wait, just quick question. When, when, are we talking? when when is he saying this? Well, uh, what date? November, two, November, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes on, i um, this is a direct quote, but COVID-19 has seriously accelerated the fourth industrial revolution. He uses that exact phrase, the fourth industrial revolution. He goes on to explain. He noted the urgent need to avoid physical contact between people had pushed Russia to adopt virtual cultural events, digital bank payments and distance learning. He goes on to add, Cash payments are becoming a thing of the past. There is widespread transition to non cash forms of payment. I really do believe that there are two blocks being created, that they are pursuing almost identical policies, and the policy is to curb stomp us as hard as possible and in the most uh, humiliating and dehumanizing way possible. And uh, I really disagree with this idea that somehow. Russia and China can use technocracy for good. I'm writing currently the a third volume of, of
3: my book, uh, which really goes more into the it's, it's called the clash of the two Americas. And the, the idea was to flesh out that there's no such thing as a sovereign crystallized entity called a nation state anywhere on the Earth Day, but you have uh, different you, you know, the term deep state has become increasingly used in our modern lexicon. In recent years, fifth columns is how people used to call these things beforehand. Um. Every country, the U.S. has has its, it, it has the same thing we see in China, in Russia, in India. There's a variety of things that are patriotic, that don't want to sacrifice their civilizations on an altar of some mass uh, kill. And then there is this other parasitical thing which has penetrated in various ways to very varying degrees uh, the institutions of influence in various governments of the world. Um, the thing that I think is very important to look at is whether or not there are evidence there are signs that there is resistance to this policy this call it neo eugenics whatever transhuman policy um that has been utilizing the co- the, the covid uh, pandemic as an excuse to advance its agenda because i do think that there's a lot of evidence of resistance and pushback mm-hmm. i think the point that medvedev was talking um was also a point when you had uh, Soby- uh, Sobyanin and Golikova, the deputy prime minister of Russia, who's also tied—I mean, she came in with the the Soros reformers and Perestroik in the '90s. She's been highly, highly integrated. Well, she's been a colleague of, of Kudrin, um, the the you know mm-hmm. the former finance minister who was fired in 2011 for essentially acting treacherously, Um, but she's part of a hive that's been there for a long time, especially that was brought in under the 90s. Um, And that was the time when they were calling for uh, fining people for not being vaccinated in November. That's when the announcement came out by Sobyanin, Golikova, Medvedev was was touching on that. Um, And I think just about a, a month later, you had a proclamation from the Kremlin saying that no such thing would carry weight in law, and it was reversed. Um, So I do, I mean, was that a coincidence or was that just a part of the game playing with people? No, I I think that there was um, a problem that was being recognized by the fact that Golikova, who's been the person managing the the COVID-19 response since the beginning in Russia, she, following World Health Organization mandates and protocols which have been assigned to the United States, to India, to China, has put into place a devolution of power under emergency management which has enforced and empowered oblasts, provinces, states, municipalities to make decisions outside of federal authorities. That's that's happened in the United States. Look at the case mm-hmm. of New York, when, uh, you know, <laughs> while well, Trump was still in office. Um, and I've got my problems with Trump, but there was definite renegade activity that never would have happened under a time of, of no emergency uh, mm-hmm. regarding Vax mandates and other things in New York and other liberal states. Uh, the same thing has happened in St. Petersburg, in Moscow, where you've had a lot of authority being given to mayors, to state governors, and the same thing in China, who've gone uh, full hog and have have encountered uh, fights with the federal authorities, who no longer have the sort of, I guess, authority that they would have otherwise have had. So I think to ignore that entire deep state fifth column structure causes us to not understand the fight that's been there. Like, why has Putin why did he send oligarchs to prison? Why didn't, if this oligarchy has all of the power that it currently, we think that it enjoys, controlling all of the different parts in the Hegelian dialectic equally for this the same world government resolution, then why didn't they, they have their George Soros stooge Yeltsin remain in power? Why did Putin put oligarchs in prison? Why did so many of them leave to London and Florida to avoid prison? Same thing for China. Why didn't they, why didn't George Soros' stooge Zhao Jiyang yes, remain in or, power? uh the guy who ran a think tank with George Soros he was the secretary general of China he brought in the fourth industrial revolution in 1983 in China he brought in (laughs) all of these things um, when he was premier in 83 and they they put him in they they imprisoned him and banned Soros for life uh in 89 during a coup d'etat attempt and they they banned Soros in in 2015 in Russia so it's like why did they do that why didn't they just keep those same power positions that they enjoyed that influence that they had that whole time and lastly Why is it that we have a a, a obviously vigorous, robust pro-industrial policy when when I hear Russia or China talking about uh, a new economic architecture or sustainable development, or fourth industrial revolution even, which is a term that wasn't created by Klaus Schwab. This goes back to the 60s. It just simply means what? 3D printing, uh, machine learning, AI machine learning. It means the internet of things, whatever that is. Uh, sort of, you could talk to your house and be surveilled by your house. These are things that are tools that could enslave if it's governed by an ideology of transhumanism to uh, that sees human beings as a virus. It could enslave and destroy. Or I think that, I mean, you know, repetitive work and human labor that is mindless, I'm sorry, I'll stop, uh, <laughs> could be replaced by a form of automation uh, where human beings could develop their minds. And things like digital currencies, I don't see as intrinsically bad if there is an agenda to Put the economy in a place where it's developing and pulling people out of poverty and giving them a better life, rather than going for regime change and depopulation, like these you know freaks are, are pushing.
6: You. Russia has, in all of its basically in all of its regions, had compulsory vaccination. Uh, the penalties were basically you can lose your job. They had rules where if you were over sick, in many regions they had rules where if you were over sixty and you're unvaccinated, you had to basically be in self isolation at home. Uh, so I just want to make that clear and also some of these policies are actually still in place some have been uh, pulled back because the regional governors have said okay we've reached the holy grail of you know uh, herd immunity of 80 percent and we don't need it anymore other regions even still have COVID policies in place so I just want to make that clear and also that the Kremlin actually has said broadly that they're okay with that and they're not gonna they're not gonna intervene anyway and as Putin said he was okay with a national QR code legislation which is de facto compulsory vaccination um actually but matthew i had another question for you and i'm and this is not trying this is not a gotcha question i'm generally interested because i would consider you a china expert i'm not what do you feel about what's the deal here with china and these new lockdowns i mean they put 50 million people in lockdown shanghai what i understand is one of the strictest lockdowns ever even even more strict than 2020. so i wanted to know like what's your take on that why are they doing that from,
3: from the earliest days of the whole covid uh scandemic um in February of 2020 their foreign ministry spokesperson was already like tweeting out articles from global research uh yeah. discussing the project for new American century agenda to target with genetic racial targeting of uh, pathogens as part of the the warfare of the 21st century um this is something that's been reinstated restated and restated again and again and got re-amplified with the revelations of the international array of of U.S. pentagon-run biolabs all over the world a lot of them are around China's own perimeter, as far as uh, it seems to evidence evidence showing. And the Chinese foreign ministry has been very, very clear about their concerns. And I think they've been watching this for 20 years. So part of it is that they're expecting this and have been treating this in the form of a DEFCON 2. They've been in DEFCON 2 mode, right? Like DEFCON 1 is you're in nuclear war. DEFCON 2 is pre. They're, they're operating under the assumption that there is, if not this, then a likely other uh, targeted attack, perhaps targeting the Han uh, genetic stock. Um, the Slavs also like Lavrov has warned that there's been, um, a concern that the Slavic genetic coding has also been targeted. Um, so part of it is they're trying to stay, I think as much in control as possible without creating as many, uh, fissures as possible. Uh, you got to pick and choose your battles, but
4: um, in
6: control of what though? Because the I thought all...
3: the way you could
4: further put pressure on the capital markets in the West is to shut down the supply chains in China.
2: So basically the contention, and Riley, I, I guess, uh, I would like you and Ian to respond to that is uh, the way Matt and, and Tom have framed it is that these types of behaviors um, on the part of Russia and China, they argue is, is from um, that those governments when they do uh, those uh, examples you brought up are on a wartime footing. So um, why don't you respond to how you view uh, that, um, you know, opinion?
6: This argument doesn't surprise me because it's basically what you're saying is they're doing the same bad things, but one of them is doing it for legitimate security reasons, the other one is doing to oppress people or to make lives miserable. I don't see how you can make that argument, though. Especially, just look at the data in Russia. We're seeing the the highest mortality since the end of World War II. We're seeing pensioners dropping off in the largest numbers since the 1990s. We're seeing uh, the Russian government push a drug an unproven untested experimental drug that is very likely extremely dangerous with zero transparency with very very sketchy ties to all, all the key players that apparently everybody hates the world economic forum big pharma etc and the, and so the the natural for me the conclusion here is okay there's different blocks there's a power struggle but they're implementing the same the same st- structures to control us it's the same curb stomping they're they're just there's two different boots doing it to do different lots of people
5: what are the key elements of um, the great reset what what we think they are I mean for me I, I you know fourth Industrial Revolution Internet of Things internet of bodies central bank digital currency um, I mean what what are the other other aspects of it in terms of the digitalization of everything,
3: 3d printing, machine learning, all that, all that
5: uh, kind of stuff, AI, these are the things would would you not agree that those are the things that are kind of the key technological aspects of the great reset.
1: I would just like to add on to that a focus on a rationing of energy to a focus of insurance of renewable energy.
5: Yeah, there which we go. We
1: haven't really we haven't really touched on yet. Yeah, that's but, a big um, one. That will be a big part of the great reset is a we're going green the green reset, if you will. And because we're going green, there's less power for everybody. And and it would would essentially be rationing that power to become almost a currency. Putting a dollar 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 value on the reduction of your carbon footprint by going
3: to energy sources that don't allow you to do very much to sustain uh, people or industrial economies.
5: So which country in the world
3: has moved furthest down that path? The, down the green energy depopulation or
5: deindustrialization path down the technological control of its population path
3: China has invasive, employed invasive technology quite a bit everything Kit just said though no uh, China is not relying their economy on windmill solar panels though they have no, that they're, they're, it's all for their residential uh, sectors their industrial base they're producing more coal more natural gas more nuclear power than any country ever in history who says
5: that the sustainable development is about green energy do you is that what you think it's about green energy well it's the way klaus
3: schwab a, defines it it's about depopulation
5: who says klaus schwab is in charge of anything
3: i'm using it as a fictitious thing. i mean it's, it could be any name of an asshole uh, you know upper yeah. level manager and of it the great race I, I mean, it, it
5: could be any pr muppet and he's yeah. just another one Right sure, sure. Now, the, the Green Revolution, the, the, the sustainable development is not about anything to do with saving the planet from climate change by building windmills. Not at all. It, it, what it is about is the creation of new markets. That's no. what it's about. No, it's about depopulation. In my view, it's about the creation of new markets. I mean, if you're talking about, creating, about the, the marketization of nature itself and creating four quadrillion dollars worth of new markets i can't really see how that is not about the creation of new markets but i'll I'll, I'll take your point so i think we are getting things very confused here what we what we are seem to be debating about is that is that to be on board with the reset agenda, you actually have to be pursuing all the PR bullshit that is at the front of the, P- of the great reset agenda. And that's what it is, it's just PR bullshit. So what is the great reset really about what the great reset is really about is controlling the population. And as you have said, obviously, look at taking the eugenics aspect into it possibly about depopulation as well. That's what it's about. And who is leading in the world on those elements that are going to enable that to happen? China and Russia? Not at all. No way.
2: I think basically what what Ian was trying to um, set up, right, was um, he was naming specific technologies that are considered to be a key part of the Great Reset for the purpose of top-down control correct Ian? And he was asking you which country is most advanced in those um, technologies.
3: What I'm getting at is the means and ends because the ends are depopulation and global stupidification Mm -hmm. and you might want to put like the idea that they create new markets man. I mean it's like say yeah we'll put more dollar value on human blood and that way bloodletting is going to become like a new fad and we'll create new markets of people willing to like give their blood but you're ultimately um, killing your well, markets you're killing your hosts because everyone's like bleeding themselves and that's what they're doing with this type of mark carney green new markets the Down mark carney thing though
2: it it is in fact aimed at a lot of uh new markety type stuff uh, like the natural asset corporations and some of the stuff that they've been throwing in which um like Corey morningstar if you're familiar uh, sure. has written a lot and i've done some writing too on the, the financialization of yeah of, of nature agenda so that is a thing that's sort of been folded into the sustainable development yeah, yeah, portfolio yeah. as it were in
3: nature yeah they want to do that but at the same time their the objective is to uh destroy and, and, and kill your, your potential clients, ultimately, like they're creating a system, whereby they want a, a complete feudal system of no change and obedience, whereby uh, you're, it's bad business, you're killing your market, you're killing your clients by reducing their ability to sustain themselves well, and that's the agenda.
2: If I could just ask to to have a better idea of of how you're looking at the eugenics agenda here, do you see this uh, broader eugenics agenda aimed at completely depopulating or keeping keeping certain segments of populations around and others now? Yeah, I think like do you see models, it as a selective the, thing? The
3: carrying capacity of most of the computer models that they're utilizing seem to vector around a consensus of one, maybe two billion or so. Yeah. Um, but overall, so reducing internet... it
2: to a certain level, do you think yeah. that they yeah, would I... selectively apply that to, to countries like to populate, I don't know, South America more than Europe or something That's like a... that? Do you see that as happening?
3: I think going back to the Kissinger agenda in the early 70s for a world defined around a uh, first, second, third world, you know, where. The U.S. was going to outsource and deindustrialize. China was going to be the sweatshop, cheap labor zone that would stay too poor to buy what it produces. in Africa and the, the darker-skinned countries were going to just not even have sweatshop jobs. They would just be used for their ex- minerals extraction by Western corporations. That type of like crystallized configuration of the world into the the L LO, the LOI, you know, as as HG Wells called it, right? The beautiful people who would just consume and be stupid uh, consumers in the the. Not Things to Come, what was it? The the Time Machine, that was it. And then the the Morlocks, you know, that was like a cartoonified version of it, who would remain these like Beta Gamma uh, people who would just stay slaves, producers. That was like Kissinger's forever model. He didn't want that to ever change. Um, He didn't want the Gang of Four to be put in prison or for any of
5: that like the cultural revolution was what he wanted for the world. i was very interested about the idea that you know if we t- the Chinese uh, technological revolution just happened by you know some kind of fifth column that was trying to trying to introduce ideas against China's will. Um I don't see that at all. What I see is a lot of investment going from the west into China to make it happen. And that seems to have followed uh, a plan that was that was uh, discussed at length by people like the trilateral commission so i uh, you know china's rise has not been just just organic it's it's happened because of foreign direct investment and technological transfers at both at both the corporate and the political level so you know i mean i uh, if and, and, and what we are seeing at the moment, we got the key, got obviously, the key element, I think, of the control grid is going to be central bank digital currency. And there's no doubt that China are leading on central bank digital
1: currency. I just wanted to ask a question. Um, it's a, a depopulation question. It's something I've never quite been able to, like, what would be the purpose of a depopulation agenda? I mean, supposing that you attach a dollar value to people, and, and you know, we know they do. 8 billion people is like, you know, it's like printing money. It devalues the life of each person. As we saw in the Middle Ages with the Black Death, market labor was empowered by a reduction in population. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I mean, I understand that by talking about people as if they're a problem, what they do is they turn people into commodity to be discussed as if it's a glut on the market. But I don't understand how they actually would benefit from reducing that number. Well, it's harder for them to, to control
4: 8 billion people with different cultures and different backgrounds and different histories um, than it is to control 1 billion people all with the same culture without any allegiance to a nation state, without any allegiance to uh, their family or their community or anything else. And that's what they're actually, that's that's what their depopulation agenda is. It's also dumb. They are Malthusians. They have linear models. Those linear models are wrong. They do not believe in the law of diminishing marginal utility. They don't believe in basics of human nature they believe that they can remake human nature but the new soviet man all these theories of all these collectivists through time doesn't matter they're all flavors of the same thing which is we can change humans into being something that they're not which is not possible so that's their operating parameter that's their fundamental base case we we take these linear models from today and we project them infinitely into the future even though everything goes in a cycle because Every, every all of our behavior is moderated by what we've previously done. Law of diminishing marginal utility: the next va- unit of a thing gets you less satisfaction of need because you have less need of it. So the first drop of water to a starving, to a, to a man dying of thirst is important. The second drop less important, and then eventually he drowns. Right? If you give him too much water, so that's the that's the model. They don't understand that, and so they believe they don't understand how innovation. And refuse to accept that innovation comes from the the rising of price and the rising of 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 arbitrage and profit opportunity they don't believe in this they believe in control as that as matt talked about (laughs) because of this we're we're mistaking or the the guys on the other side of this argument are doing pattern recognition and seeing the, the same things but then ascribing the same motives and those motives are not the same Okay, because they because both Xi and Putin have talked explicitly. Remember, Putin has a degree in economics. He has a PhD in economics, and if you read his doctoral thesis, you will see what how, what he thinks about how to utilize people and how to go about this, and to go about defending Russia against the system that he's fighting against, the 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 rise of which he's fighting against. Those not those those fundamental Malthusian errors are what's driving all of this. And every one of these systems that they're attempting to put in place are metastable. They're not going to, even if they, even if Tom Schwab and company were to win, and my definition of winning is they win in Ukraine, they subjugate Russia, they turn on China, and they put the whole world under their version of technocracy. As I said at the outset, with the European Union, and transferring power ultimately to the IMF as world government with the BIS and the uh, the the United Nations world government the IMS and the BIS as the world central bank that's their goal stated explicitly no problem and that win will last 15 years because it's not sustainable it is not sustainable and this is the problem with their arguments about what is sustainable energy a sustainable economy when Russia and China are talking about sustainable energy Go look at their actions, not their words. I don't give a hoot in hell about what it is they say in PR speak. Those are nice. Um, I see power of Siberia too. I see the Japanese buying, not, not backing out of Sakhalin. I see more LNG going through the arc through, across the Arctic sea lanes. I see more pipelines. I see a $140 billion book of business by Rosatom to build nuclear power plants across all of Asia. I see all of these things. And I and I see a $40 billion investment in Iran. I see Gazprom um, uh, inve- getting the lion's share of the investment off of Iran's Caspian Sea assets. I see all of these things. And I see the Saudis getting off the petrodollar. And then you're telling me that this is all part of Klaus Schwab's great reset, and this all just looks the same? Because at the end of the day, we're all going to have green passes? Do you, does anybody here not think that enough people in the world will just go, you know what, no. I mean, are we all just so freaking terrorized by these people to think that they're so all powerful when they're really just a bunch of, frankly, inbred Euro trash? That's my argument at this point. It boils down to that. Have a little
3: self-respect and stand up and say, no, we're just not gonna do this. It's such an inversion of common sense. Like if you want a better economy, why wouldn't you want more people who are more productive because that's a better consumer base, a a better uh, productive base as well to do business, to make more money. Uh, it would have been in that sense, you know, much more logical to develop Africa the way Kwame Nkrumah and Patrice Lumumba and others had envisioned an industrial developed Africa in the early 60s, you know, um, or 50s even, it, because that that would have been a, a an Africa that would have had a better ability to support a higher quality of living standard, longer longevity, that means you're going to consume more because you're going to be living a lot longer, right, you're going to be producing more. You're, you, why didn't they do that instead, right, it seems like really bad business. Instead, they went for this other thing, of just rape Africa uh, for you know, decade and decade and decade, which was actually really bad business. So in the closing statement here, look, I, I'd say that China has, um, if, if you look at their one-child policy, because people are often like, well, okay, China's about population control. Look at their one-child policy, which they're, they are still trying to heal off of. That was a mess up, but it was also not a China policy indigenously. That came from the Club of Rome, Song Jiang. I wrote about this extensively in my new book and articles. Song Jiang, a leading scientist, was brought in to the Club of Rome and brought back their computer models um, in 78, 79, which became what was adopted as part of a broader uh, condition upon which China would receive the factories and other things that it needed to get out of poverty. Um, it did itself a real, a lot of harm in the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it was, that was a bad... I mean, even the Chinese will agree that that was, that was a bad decision. <laughs> that was scarring. Um, self-inflicted destruction. So to get out of a lot of the underdevelopment needs, there was an an, agreement reached by Kissinger to provide for giving them technology and and factories and other things. Um, I don't think Kissinger had a sense of the long-term planning, like the very patient approach of these Confucian type of, and the Chinese leadership were thinking in much longer sweeps of history. Kissinger asked uh, Deng Xiaoping, like what do you think of the the French Revolution? Or no, no, it was uh, Zhou Enlai. And and uh, uh, Enlai said, you know, it's too soon, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> um, so the Chinese are thinking like in multi, multi-generational terms. And Kissinger thinks in long terms too, being a part of the upper echelon managerial class. But I think even he was uh, sideswiped by the type of, of multi-phased planning, which involved, I mean, for a period, China was almost lost. Soros, like I said, had their guy. I mean, Soros' man was in power. They, they nearly had him set up as the Gorbachev Yeltsin of China. Which was going to involve the privatization of their central bank in the full-blown Yeltsin package that was being d- done in Russia, in China in '89. It came close, really close. Um, people don't realize what Tiananmen Square was really about. <laughs> Gene Sharp was on the ground in Tiananmen Square. You know, it was a it was a might end type of operation, and uh, and it didn't work out. It worked for Russia. Russia got their their complete you know uh, <laughs> poison fed to them under Strobe Talbot, other Rhodes Scholars. Victoria Newland was overseeing that as Talbot's assistant. Um, they got Chubai, who set up the Davos, you know, uh, the 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 Gaidar Davos uh, conference. He set up the Davos Pact in '96. He set up the the Gaidar Davos conference in Russia in 2009. And where is Chubai now? Right, the, the leading privatizer who worked, who who installed many of these oligarchs and, and even technocrats, um, like Golikova, her husband. Um, all of these people were all installed in the '90s, and and many of them still have protection and are still there. Some of them run um, an operation within RT itself, like Margarita Simeonin, the editor-in-chief, was caught red-handed, ca- like you know, essentially participating in an attempted coup d'etat in January 2020, when there, the whole Russian government resigned. And that same day, she had said that Putin should just claim ownership for shooting down the, uh, the MH17 uh, jet over Ukraine, just like the, the Iranians claimed ownership, you know? Um, and she was, like, brought into Bloomberg and everything else. So there, there's this whole other thing inside of Russia that is apparently not something you could just extinguish. It's It's got protections. I think that there is nuance, there is a fight, and I think that if we oversimplify and just look at one limited definition of the New World Order as being specifically um, COVID-oriented and nothing else, we miss a lot of that richness and we miss a lot of the the solutions the weaknesses in the oligarchy's own system itself that they they that we can capitalize off of if we look at where where do they fail where what are they what is the oligarchy afraid of
5: um which is I think what Russia and China are aware of I see the new world order or whatever you want to call it the globalist project about one central thing and that is global governance and that global governance I would suggest is intended to be rolled out in terms of if we look at it from a great reset which is, Part of the agenda for global governance. If we look at it from that perspective, the, the the way that that is intended to be managed is through technocracy. Technocracy is the key to managing global governance in the future, and that's something that the the, the think tanks have been discussing for what fifty years, sixty years. So that's where we're heading. So we are definitely. At the same time, we are definitely seeing a a power struggle. There's no doubt about that, and I think that that is coming to a uh, uh, it's it's particular coming to a particularly coming to a point at the moment in a military sense in in the Ukraine. So you could say, and we can, and it is perfectly legitimate to say that Russia has got legitimate security concerns and all that kind of stuff. And that that power struggle is real in terms of that in terms of that confrontation. But it is also real at the globalist level as well. There is a power struggle. But what that doesn't mean, and I think this is where we we diverge, is that that, that, that either side is offering a fundamentally different solution. They're not. They're offering the same solution. And if we consider where the, the key aspects of what we might call the the, the technocratic control system, those technocratic control systems how, are being pursued and have been developed to their fullest potential so far, or to their fullest extent so far in the East. Now, I, have got, I agree with much of what's been said in terms of the, the motivations for that may be very, very different. And I agree that there is a difference between the Slavic and the Western mindset. But that doesn't mean that the project is not going forward. The project is going forward, no matter who wins this, this confrontation at the moment. And if we look at history, it's clear to see that the people that are pushing forward a globalist agenda have and always do make hedge their bets and make sure that they back both horses. Now we are seeing the same we can we can see that in World War One, we can see it in World War Two, and we can see it in World War Three, which I think began in 2001. This is a war against us all, not a war against you know, East and West. East and West are vying for control of one system. And and the model for that system, which was created, I would suggest, the world's first tech mate that we've seen is China, which was created with Western compliance and Western investment and Western technological transfers, technology transfers. That is the system that is being rolled out globally. And I don't see Russia and China particularly resisting that. On the contrary, what I see them doing is vying for control of that, which is, that doesn't mean that the system, It that doesn't mean that the, the confrontation isn't real. It just means that they're vying for control of the same thing.
6: I really like Ian's point that this isn't a war of, you know, Nation against nation, or even block against block, but at the end of the day, we're all, you know, under attack. It's—I uh, really do believe that, for whatever reason, our governments, all of them, have decided that we're the enemy, and we need to be put in our place and controlled and managed. And again, I have to go back to where this conversation even started, and with Whitney's. Definition of the Great Reset, which everything spring seems to springboard from COVID, at least a lot of it. I think everyone can agree to that to a great extent. And I haven't seen any evidence, living in Russia, that the Russian government has done anything to stop this. And this is a global. This is a, a literally a global crime. Not only that, Russia has profited. Not only does Russia have its own alleged COVID vaccine, which again unproven very very sketchy links it profits off of astrazeneca's shot it literally is invested in our farm which produces astrazeneca domestically and exports it to other countries so if you see russia as this sort of you know bulwark for you know defending against whatever i just i just don't i just don't see how you how that works when you just look at what russia has done over the last two years in terms of covid uh, I would want to make one other point here, which is I was thinking I was, the other day I was reading a book of Orwell's essays, and he had this great essay from he, written in 1940, and it was about his beef with how the 1940 was being written about, you know. And he basically said the problem is that the the crazy events of today are being written by partisans, and so his his argument was, you know, this is not. An epoch of expansion and liberty but an epoch of fear tyranny and regimentation and so he said uh if we're gonna face reality if we're gonna reach this sort of mystical acceptance of things as they are you know to say that i accept in our age is like to say that you accept concentration camps rubber truncheons bombs airplanes tin food machine guns slogans submarines, spies political murders what's scary about that sentence is that all that stuff seems normal to me you know And so what's the new normal? What's the new normal that, what does it mean, I accept in 2022? And for me, living in Russia, I don't really think it's that different than what your definition in the United States or Canada or the UK is. I accept in 2022 is a very scary thing. It's a very scary thing to say, I accept quarantines, QR codes, forced vaccinations, uh, experimental drugs with no no actual value, really crazy, ideological, you know, uh, horrible censorship. Uh, You you know, you can go down the list and and Russia is doing the exact same thing. And at the end of the day, it's the same technocratic system. It's just a different block. And so we're all in it together. That's really how I see it. And so I hope everyone makes it through.
2: I think this was actually really productive for understanding where each side is coming from, the main arguments of each side and where the differences are. Um, Because um, from what I was observing within, you know, alternative media uh, circles a lot of people were just talking past each other emotions were very high divisions were worsening and so i think uh this panel has done uh, something very constructive in being able to make the differences very clear and I think some similarities and common grounds emerged uh, in course of the conversation. So I just want to thank you all for participating. It's very important that those that are opposed to tyranny, you know, are able to have that sort of ability to converse and understand other uh, differing points of view. Uh, so you know, divide and conquer. Uh, you know, the, the tactics so often used by the establishment, the system, the man um, against us, you know, doesn't uh, keep us from being able to uh, be, be colleagues or, uh, you know, be able to work together when it's uh, when it's necessary.